The great Rudy Tomjanovich said it best. Never doubt the heart of a champion. Two of them dominated on Sunday. The great Howard Beck, locked on NBA insider for the offseason of the playoffs, joins us next to talk about it. You are locked on NBA, your daily NBA podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. We probably first covered an event together in, I don't know, 1996, probably, or something of that sort. Two Bay Area guys that have gone various places through the media. Howard Beck, I'm David Locke. Nice to be with you. I only started this show somewhere along the way. They're letting me fill in to actually cover it again, and I get to do it with our Locked On NBA insider, Howard Beck, and playoff offseason expert, Howard. Let's start with Steph. It's an all-timer. Most points ever in a game seven. I When you came on to start, I said, all right, he vaulted himself into the top 10 of all-time players last year with his with the championship, and now he's walking up the top 10 with that kind of performance. I am terrible. By the way, great to be with you, David. I am terrible with lists. I am terrible with rankings. I am terrible with trying to uh, compare guys across the eras. These things, they... They confound me. They drive me nuts. I love the discussion. I, I love hearing other people do it because if I try to do it myself, I just sit here and stare into space and have way too many tabs open on my computer trying to figure it all out. So I will leave it to you and others to figure that out. But I, what I will say about Steph and that performance, other than holy moly, that was amazing, um, is that I wrote a piece last last spring as the Warriors were heading back to the finals at a se- in a season where nobody, no one expected it. One, and once again, here we are not expecting it. And they're possibly on their way. Um, And it was about just Steph and the way that we talk about him and that we still, at that moment in time, and this is before he won the fourth championship, that we still didn't know how to process Steph. We didn't know how to describe him, how to talk about him, how to rank him, to your point, because he doesn't look or play like any other of the quote-unquote dominant superstars in NBA history, right? He's not a giant of the past, a Wilt Chamberlain, a Bill Russell, a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, He's not a Shaq. He's not a Hakeem. And then the in the in more modern Ooh. times, you know, you had just the guys who jump out of the gym and can, can you know can can seemingly fly. Air Jordan, air for a reason. So the Michael Jordan prototype, the the Kobe Bryant uh, version of that, which is in the Michael Jordan mold, you know, Dr. J, uh, you know, going back to Elgin Baylor. So we have leapers. We have giants. We didn't have a Steph until we had Steph. Like LeBron is his own mold in a lot of ways, but LeBron's kind of a combination of Magic Johnson and Carl Malone. Steph is just Steph. And so the reason I wrote this piece last last spring was just the idea that like we're still grappling with how to 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 assess him and properly appreciate him. And the the beauty of it is that then he went on and won the championship and got his finals MVP finally. And now I I don't think anybody hesitates, as you don't hesitate, to say, hey, he's top 10 all time. Now it's just a matter of where in the top 10. How many guys is he leapfrogging now? And and that's a fun discussion. Again, one that I will <laughs> probably opt out of whenever possible and chicken out of because I just think it's so hard to do. But he belongs in the discussion. And that's the real uh, important piece here, starting last spring and coming you know, all the way forward now to this 50-pointer in a Game 7, the biggest, the, the greatest scoring performance ever in a, in a Game 7 in NBA history. Um it means that we have to keep talking about the fact that, yeah, Steph at his height, at his build, at his, uh, you know, his his range, a guy who shoots most of the time farther from the basket, 
in the, his own mold, we now have to absolutely contend with the fact that he is in that top 10. And now it's just a matter of where. So you say it beautifully. I, I've always said it this way. We grew up in an era like with Kareem, right? It was prop Kareem and magic. And we could, you could kind of be magic in your backyard a little bit. Like you could kind of <laughs> pretend to be magic. But sure. Kareem you, Kareem, you couldn't really kind of had to do Kareem on the Nerf hoop, right? Yeah. Michael Jordan, you kind of have to do on the Nerf hoop. Steph's actually one of the few superstars you can do in the backyard or on the playground. Most of the other great superstars of all time, you actually can only do on a Nerf hoop. All right, but even as we say that, and yes, there's an aspect of that, David, because we look at Steph and he doesn't, he's not a giant. He doesn't, you know, jump over guys. So we think, we think he's more like the average person like you and me, but he's not, right? Like the fact is he's way stronger than you think. He's way quicker than you think. His handle with both hands is incredible. His ability to kind of change speeds, change directions, finish through contact, finish with both hands. Um, there are all these other aspects of his game that are so much more subtle and that are not just the three-point shot. And again, this was part of the premise that I was pursuing with that story last year was like, we talk so much about him being the greatest shooter of all time because he is. And last season was, of course, the season that he passed Ray Allen to become the greatest three-point shooter of all time and just in terms of volume, right? And he was already there in terms of accuracy among the all-time greats. But it is all the other aspects of his game. You know, the, the difference between Steph and Ray Allen isn't just that Steph has shot more threes and made more threes. It's that, oh, yeah, and Steph does all these other things as a playmaker and finisher and all the, the fun stuff he does off the ball, the stuff he does on the ball. Um, it's it's everything else about his game. And so, yeah, we can sit there and pretend to be Steph in, our, in the backyard, but we're all deluding ourselves. I actually think the other part about him that we don't talk about enough is he's a killer. Right. Like the stories <laughs> sure. about him are kind of, there are some Jordan S stories. Like Jay Billis said in the draft night, he couldn't guard a chair. ESPN did the thing where the college guys called an NBA game. Jay Billis called the game. And I think he dropped like 50 that night. Like you go back and look at his early moments in his career. Like when he has monster nights, there's a reason on every single one of them. He's got that aspect of it too. And we saw that in game seven today. Well, not only did we see that, but we saw, the mischievous version of that, right? Jordan is going to take your heart out and he's going to say it. He's going to do it in that, in that macho aggressive way. Like I am here to take your heart out and watch me do it. And now I'm going to remind you of it. And I'm going to show your heart to you. Steph is sitting there after making some impossible shot with his mouthpiece hanging half out of his mouth with this silly, like, you know, 15 year old grin on his face. Like, yeah, here I am. I'm doing this again. And so it's, the, the, he was, you know, became the baby-faced assassin, got that nickname for a reason. And it's still all these years later, this deep into his career, and not quite as baby-faced. He's a little scruffier. He's got, you know, I don't think I've seen any grays coming through yet, but still, it's an older version of the baby-faced assassin, but it's still the boyish, uh, the boyishness, but also the the um, the childish joy, right? Like, when, when Steve Kerr talks about the Warriors winning with joy and, and that being a defining aspect of their dynasty that's really about Steph I mean it's about a lot of guys other guys too but your best player sets the tone and Steph is the guy who brings the joy and he's sitting there at least twice today where he was at the line third fourth quarter as they're starting to pull away and his mouthpiece is hanging out of his mouth and he's got this grin on his face like yeah I'm doing it again and that smile is telling the Kings and all their fans you're done you're done and it's and it's and it's just as devastating that little grin, that little mischievous look is just as devastating, I would say, as Shaq mean mugging 
or Jordan shit, you know, uh, pumping his fist, any of that stuff. It is, it is in, on that same level because you know exactly what means what it means. I asked this question with huge respect to Sacramento. I thought they were terrific. I thought yes. the familiarity between Mike Brown and the Warriors was evident. The backdoor cuts, the whole first half of this game that suddenly disappeared, by the way, in the second half of the game, credit to the Warriors. But I, Mike Brown knew the adjustments that were coming. I thought that this could have been, and I, I wonder, maybe this was the most difficult matchup for the Warriors in the Western Conference. Are they the favorites to win the West now? If you had asked me, David, a couple weeks ago, um, who's coming out of the West, um, I would have hemmed and hawed and, and, and stalled and told you all the reasons why a bunch of teams couldn't, right? I would say the Nuggets don't play enough defense, and I'm not sure if they have a second star to take the pressure off of Jokic. This is before Jamal Murray really gets going. I would have told you that the Kings don't play enough defense, that the Grizzlies don't play enough offense, especially in the half court, and that they, they're, they're too inconsistent. I would have told you that the Clippers are too banged up. I would have, and eventually I would have gotten to the Warriors and said, you know what? And I did say this, by the way, not on, your, on this show, but on others, um, that I, I still, if I have to pick, if I have to pick, and this would have been a few weeks ago, I was still picking the Warriors, honest truth. And the reason was more about the fact that of all these caveats, all these concerns, all these ways we can nitpick all these teams that are all really good, but maybe there's something that we don't quite buy into. The Durant hasn't been with the Suns quite long enough. I don't know if they have a chemistry. I don't know if they have the depth. I'm coming back to the Warriors because as wonky as their season was, as as alarming as that, what was it, nine wins on the road, nine and 32, as alarming as that road record was, in the playoffs, you only got to win one road game per series. Uh, in this case, they won two, right? Um, so I, I never... I never worried about the road record for the Warriors. I worried about whether they were whole, whether they were healthy. I worried about whatever that mystery element was that seemed to be missing at times this season. Chemistry? Is it age? Is it over-reliance on some of the young guys that didn't really fit in the rotation? But at the end, I felt like with Wiggins back in the mix, with Gary Payton II back, I was like, this is the team that won the championship last year. Why, why couldn't they do it? And the only thing distracting us was, well... The regular season record doesn't look that good. The defensive rating is kind of crappy, but man, they, they're still that team. And so I'm not surprised that they're here. I picked them to win this series in six. It took them seven. Um, and yeah, as, as the, you know, one of four teams standing in the West now, I mean, it's Steph versus LeBron again. That's fun. Um, and, and Nuggets and Suns, we'll see what becomes of that. But like the one team out of the foursome, that really has the best case based on talent, experience, all of that, it's probably the Warriors. It's probably still the Warriors. It doesn't mean that one of these teams won't knock them out. Uh, but yeah, um, I, I, I still I, I have this stubborn belief in them because I, I, th there's just something about the aura of that team. And, um, you know, on a day like today, th they've just vindicated it. He's Howard Beck. He's Locked On's NBA playoff and offseason expert. Who was the second heart of a champion on this Sunday? We'll talk about him when we continue. Plus, the story of the first round to me is the losers don't have path forward. There are no good path forwards for three of the teams that lost in the first round of the playoffs. What do they do? We'll talk about that as we continue with Howard Beck here on Locked On NBA. Today's show is brought to you by Prize Picks. 
Prize Picks is your daily fantasy answer for fun. It's simple. You pick two to six players. If they score more or less than your prize pick projections, you win up to 25% on any entry. No competing against other people. It's just you versus projections available. Prize Picks offers projections of any sport you can watch. Any. Just trust me. Any. They're all there. Entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It's that easy, safe and fast and easy withdrawals. And it's operational in 30 states as well as Canada. So download the PrizePix app or go to prizepix.com and sign up for your daily fantasy sports. First time users, this is great. 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with the promo code locked on. If you deposit 100, you get 100. If you deposit 50, you get 50. You deposit 7250, you're weird, and you get seventy-two fifty. You deposit one hundred and fifty. You only get a hundred because it's up to a hundred dollars. You're smart. You get it. Don't forget. Enter the promo code Lockdown, or you get none of that. It's all at Prize Picks, your daily fantasy expert. Prize Picks. Sign up right now and get your up to a hundred dollars match with Prize Picks app with Locked On. David Locke, along with Howard Beck here on Locked on NBA, regular Monday Jackson Gatlin show will be up and available for you tomorrow with the three biggest stories of the week, and we'll be running through all of them. All right, Kyle Lowry knocks away an offensive rebound with about five minutes left of a tight game. They kick out to Gabe Vincent for a three. Next play down, Jalen Brunson drives the lane. Kyle Lowry ties him up for a jump ball, wins the jump ball. They score on the next possession. They're up seven. Kyle Lowry impacts the next four plays after that. He has been a shadow of himself. But you talk about a heart of a champion. He gave Miami the win over New York. He did that. And Jimmy Butler somehow staying in the game after rolling his ankle so badly that you wondered if like, he might be out for the series. <laughs> and he just kind of stays in there. And Spolstra says afterward, yeah, why didn't you take Jimmy out? And he's basically like, yeah, I, I don't want to piss off Jimmy, essentially, was the explanation. That was not word for word, but that was the, the message. Um, man, I, it's 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 so fascinating, David, because we've seen how this, this goes sometimes, right? You pick up a guy toward the end of his career, as the Heat did with Kyle Lowry. And the, the Heat are a team that just have to be opportunistic in terms of their personnel right now. You know, when you're capped out, when you're in the tax, everything else, there's just not that many moves you can make. And the Lowry bid, you know, however, what, two off seasons ago, whenever it was, seemed like the right move at the right time. And then, as, as you said, shadow of himself. And so many times that I think all of us were, were sitting there going like, all right, well, it was the right bet, but man, they're on the hook for a lot of money on Kyle Lowry now, and he's he's just really he's he's kind of he's kind of cooked, and um, you know, we, you know what's where's the upside here? And then you get into a game like this. Now, it, it's 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 one game. They are up one zero. They've stolen home court advantage, but Jimmy Butler is now, uh, you know, a little hobbled. Um, the Knicks could get Julius Randle back, who of course missed game one. We'd be remiss not to note that, and. How many more of those games does Lowry have or how many? And the thing is, maybe it's that they don't need, you know, they don't need a game like that. They only need what you just listed a few minutes ago, which is it's a couple of plays. It, it's it's one hustle play one. You know, he's going to take a charge or two or three, you know, because Kyle Lowry's really good at that. He's going to slap the ball away. He's going to make a, a couple of really smart passes like he's he can impact a game in short spurts. You can't rely on him for 35 minutes anymore. And you can't, you're, you're not expecting the 25-point Kyle Lowry game. Maybe there's one of those there, too. Who knows? He can still shoot a little. Um, but he's not done. He's not cooked. He's still important to that team. And the fact is, as little, um, I don't want to say, as, as, 
talent is, is the wrong word. It sounds insulting. Uh, as little depth as the Heat have, as little reliable offensive punch as they now have in this version of them, without Tyler Hero, without Victor Oladipo, um, they were already a, kind of a, a, a limited offensive team in the regular season before those injuries. They somehow beat the Bucks. I still don't understand how that happened, but they somehow beat the Bucks without Hero and Oladipo. And yeah, they're, they're, they're relying on an old Kyle Lowry and now a banged up Jimmy Butler. And you still think they're probably, you know, I don't want to say probably, there's a very good chance they win this series having stolen home court advantage now. Um, just a, a, like, this, is, this was the definition of a gutty win. And the definition of, you know, people, you know, Heat Knicks just inspires thoughts of the 90s and immediately people say, start using terms like rock fight. That was kind of it. I think we're going to see much more of the same. All right. I'm going to put a confluence of about four different thoughts in here. Okay. Right. That, that I had while watching coupled with uh, some things from Kevin Pelton, the great Kevin Pelton. So Kevin Pelton, after the uh, Kings Warriors game, tweeted out that the combined regular season winning percentage of the eight teams in the Converse semifinals is 59%. It's the lowest ever since we expanded to 16 teams. And the previous low was 62%. So it's like a lot lower, 59% compared to 62. I'm watching, so that's one. I'm watching Miami, New York. And the thought I have on this thing is like, these teams are, they're okay. They're, nobody's great. There's no dominant team in the league. It's been clear all year. When we mm-hmm. were 20 games in, we didn't have a team that was plus 11 like we usually do in differential. We had the, I think we had one team over plus five. It was the Celtics at that point. They'll probably win the title. We knew it then. Uh, so I'm watching. There's no dominant team. You hear that note from Pelton. Has coaching become more important than ever before because the margins are slimmer than they've ever been before? That is a phenomenal question. Um, there's a lot of different ways in which I've um, thought about and and discussed with people around the league and, and Ren wrote earlier in the season about this this season of of just a of of a, of a extreme kind of parody, right? Parody, mediocrity, whatever you want to call it. We're, we're in a moment here where um, there's a kind of a, a stasis that that I don't think we've seen or an equilibrium we haven't seen in this league, maybe ever. I think statistically it's true that it's, it's, it's been literally ever. Um, I had not really thought about it in terms of whether that makes coaching that much more important, but I think it stands to reason, right? Like if, if the difference between you and your opponent on any given night or now in any given playoff series this spring is, is just, you know, a couple of possessions, a couple of shots, a, an adjustment here, a tweak there, a matchup here, uh, you know, that like that, that certainly suggests that, strategy and taking advantage um, in the margins is where a series could tip. But all that said, David, like I look at what happened in like warriors Kings today. And I, it, it still to me looked like, you know what, this is just a moment where, you know, you opened the show with the Rudy Tomjanovich, you know, famous quote from, from, you know, 1994, 95, um, never underestimate the heart of a champion. Like that literally, that was what we saw on display. The warriors are the team that, been there, done that, and the Kings were the team that has not been in the playoffs in 17 years and looked like a team that was still kind of trying to figure out, okay, what do we do here in a game seven? This is this is weird and nervous, and, and you know, it's they just kind of kind of kind of disintegrate, right? I, I mean, even even in the first round, um, Knicks Cavaliers matchup, like the Cavaliers just look they like both those teams are, are, are don't have a ton of experience in the playoffs, but the Cavaliers shrunk in the moment. 
Evan Mobley, Darius Garland just did not know what to do with themselves in that series, especially when they were at the Garden. And so some of this, I think, is just is just psychological and just pure human reaction, right? Um, and, and and it's not X's and O's necessarily. You can make all the adjustments in the world. You can have the best game plan in the world. The guys out on the court have to execute it. And you you have to have a certain, um, you know, steadiness of, of, of demeanor and mind to do that. And when you're Steph and Clay and Draymond and you've been there and done that a thousand times, it's easier to just stay in the moment and execute the game plan. Steve Kerr might have had a phenomenal game plan. Mike Brown might have had a phenomenal game plan. But were Malik Monk and Terrence Davis as prepared and Sabonis as prepared to do it. And then, of course, you know, look, De'Aaron Fox is dealing with that injured finger this whole time. He's had some good moments and bad moments since the injury. Um, but you got to assume on some level that was limiting his game. So uh, I'll be I'm going to start asking that question around, though. I, w- I want to see what coaches tell me. Like, coaches out of self-interest. Jeff Van Gundy would absolutely tell you coaching matters more now than ever. That's that's clear. Paul's sure. just making a good claim for it right now. I mean, Miami looked yeah. Miami looked against Jalen Brunson looked way different than Cleveland looked against Jalen Brunson, and there's no reason why Jared Allen and Aaron Mobley couldn't have been doing the same things sure. that Miami was doing. All right, so with that said, let's move to the teams that are got ousted here. Yeah. Because this margin is slimmer, and it is tighter than it's ever been, and no one is dominant. But if you're Milwaukee, like, what's your next move? If you're Minnesota, what's your next move? If you're the Clippers, what's your – or do you just say, it's that close, it's that tight, we're going to run it back because yeah. – it's just we're all playing with 13% chance to win the title, and we're hoping it comes together for us. In two of those three teams that you mentioned, David, I would say that um, circumstance and just the realities of the league and of, of the economics of the league are going to dictate that two of those three teams stay the course. Not by not not, not really by choice, but just by by lack of choice, by what else are you gonna do? And that's the Clippers and the Bucks. The only thing holding the Clippers back from contention is health. And unless you are uh, going to create, uh, you know, uh, bionics uh, to date myself and you, um, unless you have some new technology to replace all of the limbs of Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, I I just don't know what else you do, right? You can load manage, which they do, or you can try to not load manage and it probably still won't make a difference. Those guys, they get hurt. That's what they do. (laughs) And if you get lucky and they don't get hurt, this isn't a team where you go, oh, the, the supporting, this is, this is often the case, right? You have a team with a couple of stars and you go, well, the supporting cast wasn't good enough. The stars are the stars that supporting get The Clippers have a phenomenal supporting cast. They got great depth. And those guys, you know, listen, the, the, the fight they put up against the Suns with no Paul George initially, and then eventually with no Kawhi Leonard was super impressive. They're fine. There's nothing the Clippers have to do, need to do, or can do other than like pray to the injury gods and hope that Paul George and Kawhi Leonard stay healthy. There's nothing else to do. The Bucks, between you know salary uh, salary cap, luxury tax, new first aprons and second aprons, and all the other crap that the NBA is piling into the new CBA to to punish teams for spending too much. There's not much they can do now. They have to re-sign Brook Lopez, who's a free agent, and they may have to to give a new contract to Chris Middleton, who can opt out or maybe even extend him, and. Chris Middleton's pretty tight with Giannis, so you probably don't want to make your star mad. Um, so, like, where else do they go? Like, I, if I'm going to nitpick the Bucks, I'm going to say, well, they're getting old around the edges, right? And you could see this coming even when they won the title a couple of years ago. 
you got too many guys in their 30s with a lot of miles on them and a lot of injury history. Brooke Lopez, Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday. You can't replace those guys, though. It's not that simple in, in, in the NBA system. So what else can you do other than pay Brooke Lopez whatever he wants, extend or, or you know, if he opts out or whatever, give a new contract to Chris Middleton and run it back? And then the only other thing you can do is replace the coach, which, look, there's people have, have certainly made a, a pretty strong case on that. I'm not going to here today uh, out of respect for Mike Budenholzer, but like that's the one thing that they probably can do and maybe will do. Um, and they had some coaching issues in that finale, but they shouldn't have been in that finale. Like They shouldn't have been in that position. They should have never been on the ropes against an eight seed in the first place. How much of that was coaching versus simply just wonkiness in your, in your rotation. I, I don't know. Um, but I don't think there's a lot they can do. So I think, I think the bucks and Clippers pretty much run it back at, at, at with very close to what they had with the exception of the bucks, maybe replacing the coach and the Timberwolves <laughs> Timberwolves. You've given up literally everything you had to get Rudy Gobert, your old pal, Rudy Gobert. Um, you've got, Anthony Edwards, this this rising star. You've got some really good role players. The one move you could make, if you feel like it just didn't work this season, and it's hard to judge the Carl the, the Anthony Towns, Rudy Gobert thing because they had so few games together because of Cat's of injuries. But the one card you can play still, because you can't retrade Rudy Gobert and get the value that you sent out for him. So your pillars now become almost by default Anthony Edwards and Rudy Gobert. Is Carl Anthony Towns still the right long-term fit there? Is Carl Anthony Towns the right fit with Rudy Gobert? Was he ever going to be? Um, is the sample size big enough to judge that? But that's the one I think people in the, around the league have their eyes on and have for some time. Is Are we are we getting closer and closer to the point where the Timberwolves decide to move on from Cat and see what they can bring back? Because maybe you can replenish some of your draft pick supply that you sent out in the Gobert trade, right? Um, maybe you can get some better fitting pieces around Anthony Edwards and Gobert and Gobert my concern in making that kind of move would be depending on who you get back for towns are you just becoming a different version of the Utah Jazz that could never really get anywhere right like that that was good enough to win a hey, 48 50 games or whatever but not going to make a deep playoff run because that's Anthony Edwards is like a supercharged version of Donovan Mitchell in some ways and this is an older version of Gobert and a bunch of good role players like you've just become you know the you know 2018 version of the Utah Jazz. This gets to the untalked about story about the NBA playoffs, and we'll get to that when we continue with Howard Beck. Every year, someone wins a championship. We tell the story how the Bulls had to go through the Pistons, and the Pistons had to go through the Celtics, and the Lakers. You know what we never talk about? Is when you suddenly have too many playoff scars to survive. Hmm. That's you just mentioned the Utah Jazz. That's in my opinion what happened to the Utah Jazz. There were just too many playoff scars. So we all talk about the teams where the scars build scar tissue. Sometimes playoff scars build a scab that never heals and just keeps bleeding, hmm. and maybe even pusses out and oozes a little bit to get really gross and ugly about it. But like I wonder on Memphis, I wonder on Minnesota. Cleveland's probably not there yet, but Cleveland's got this other dynamic which is Cleveland did the natural thing this year. They went from playing losses to the number one, the best differential to playoffs, except for the fact they have a Donovan Mitchell clock that is just going tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock in the in middle of their facility at the loudest, loudest level right now because he'll turn down the extension in the offseason because there's no reason for him to take it, not because he hates Cleveland, because there's no reason for him to take it. And then they have a year. 
They got one year left in Cleveland before he's a pending free agent. Yeah. Two years on his deal. They got one year left. Like, that's what gets interesting to me on this thing is, like, you start having playoff scars. The Bucs have got a few, but they have a title. Minnesota's now got back-to-back playoff scars. Memphis has got some playoff scars. And they've got this great group of Jaw and Desmond and Jaron Jackson. Seems perfect. I don't know. Like, do you ha- I almost wonder if this cis world, you have to get radical. You have to get radical and do crazy stuff and throw all the chips in the way Cleveland did for Donovan, the way Minnesota did for Rudy. Memphis going to have to do something pretty dramatic here. Maybe Dame Lillard's going to have to get acquired by somebody to add to their piece. I don't know who the pieces are, but it feels like that's where we are in the NBA. That The natural progression, the old days of like, oh, well, Detroit will just lose three times to the Celtics and then they'll or the Bulls, and then they'll beat them. Ah, no, 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 because in this day, that doesn't happen anymore. No, I mean, listen, I think about, you know, the the Carl Malone, John Stockton, Utah Jazz, where those guys stayed together for 19 years or whatever. And you could do that back then because stars didn't force their way out or leave in free agency and contracts were longer and all the other stuff. Right. You had a certain stability around your core and you could you could have that sequence that you went through of, you know, the Bulls have to lose to the Pistons a bunch of times before they finally uh, advance and become the new superpower. And there is not enough patience now. Contracts are shorter now. Stars have more leverage than they ever did. And so, yeah, I mean, I use the the clock ticking analogy all the time. The clock is always ticking, especially if you have a star of the caliber of, say, Giannis or Kevin Durant or LeBron James, you know, Steph Curry even. You know, obviously he's going to spend his whole career there. But even with the, the, I would say, second-tier stars like Donovan Mitchell, um, the clock was ticking on the Jazz for Donovan Mitchell, it's that's probably among the reasons that they moved him out when they did. But now that he's Cleveland's, uh, you know, star player, the clock is ticking for them for the same reason. Because if you cannot show progress, if you cannot show your star the path to contention, and if contention is important to them, right? Because it, 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 let's let's face it, it, it's different for every player. Not all stars are as consumed with winning at the highest level as uh, as we would all like to believe. Um, but I think I think. The Cavs, like the clock is ticking there. And the, the Bucks, listen, you have the um, the safety net of having won the championship that gets you a little equity with your star. But if Giannis starts to lose, and I'm not suggesting he has, but if Giannis started to lose a little faith in where they were going, and if he looks around and says, I love these guys, but man, they're getting a little old and um, we kind of need to replenish. And hey, John Horst, uh, what's the plan here? If he starts to lose faith, doesn't matter that there's four years left on his deal. He can ask out because Ben Simmons asked out with four and Kevin Durant asked out with four. Like there is, there is no safe haven now for you. If you're a team that is both fortunate enough and cursed enough to have a star with all that cachet and leverage, um, you, you have to win. And so I think you, your, your point is well taken, David. It, It may well be that while I sit here and say, eh, run it back that may not be really that realistic of an option for some teams. I tend to think, again, I don't think the Bucs have anywhere else they can go with this. I think in the Clippers case, you know, they do have a, a decision to make if, if Kawhi Leonard and Paul George want extensions because they're going into their walk years. they got a new arena coming up in a year that they're going to want to sell tickets to, so they have that complicating factor. In the case of the, like, the Cavaliers, though, Donovan Mitchell just got there. And granted, he's, you know, every year into his career that he doesn't advance far enough is another year that he might think of as as well. My, my clock is ticking ever louder. But it's a really young team. First time that Darius Garland and Evan Mobley had even been in the playoffs. Evan Mobley's just a second-year player. Um, 
he's got all the potential in the world. They they have some work to do, but I don't think that they need to necessarily swing for the fences in that case. I think they're fascinating because they have two decisions they have to make, both of which long-term might make them better, but short-term probably don't. And so I don't know what they do. So, or three, one is they just roll it back, but they're spacing and their stuff that doesn't really work. Like Jared Allen probably is the most likely to be traded, but Evan Mobley's not ready yet. Like that was abundantly clear in the playoffs. So yeah. you make the probably the right move if you're franchise building, if you're playing like ultimate GM, the like the game on your app is you trade Jared Allen. But I don't know that you're as good the next year if you trade Jared Allen and then you're one year away. Your other move is that you trade Darius Garland because yeah. two six foot guards is not the greatest thing in the world, but you're one year away on Donovan. And by the way, I'll just throw this out there. I've always, as when I was the Utah Jazz, like Donovan Mitchell, I was always very scared that Donovan lined up with when Kawhi and Paul George ended in LA. I'll just point mm, that out. That was always interesting. I was never as worried about New York. I was always worried of like, I always thought Donovan was like the perfect spot for Donovan was Steve Ballmer in LA. So, I mean, hey, listen, Donovan Mitchell, if he still wants to uh, come home to New York, the Knicks are pretty well set now with Jalen Brunson there. And, and I'm not suggesting that Jalen Brunson has that, that level, but it's complicated. And you, again, you'd have another small backcourt, but there's another team in New York that badly, badly, badly needs a star and a guard and has a lot of extra picks and wings to deal. So, you know, if it comes up, crazy. Um, listen, I, 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 as you were going through that, my thought kept coming back to Darius Garland. Cause I think the one thing that I, the concern I had when they made that move for Donovan in the first place was okay. Really small backcourt, but, you have this incredible, uh, you know, uh, you know, four or five in, in Mobley and Allen to make up for whatever defensive deficiencies you might have with a smaller backcourt. And they did. They had the number one defense in the NBA this year, the Cavaliers. So it's viable. But if you're all in on Donovan Mitchell, I think the one thing that struck me again in this series in the, as they lost to the Knicks, and it was the thing that I wondered about when they first got him was, it's not about selfishness necessarily. It's just about if you have two guys who are both used to having the ball in their hands a lot and being the primary scorer slash playmaker, the, the one who, who is the engine of the offense, it's always a tricky balancing act. And again, not about selfishness. It's just about comfort zone and, and rhythm and what's um, just what works best for you. And so did that, did that come up in that series? I mean, yeah, I think there were times I'm looking and like, it, it wasn't clear to me what the priority was there was it mitchell scoring was it mitchell playmaking was it garland scoring was it garland playmaking like there are times that, that one of them's off the ball and is just kind of standing around are you making the most of the talent you have in that case and so yeah i i think as hard as it would be for them to do it because they they drafted garland they developed garland he became an all-star before mitchell got there do you put your whole future in mitchell's hands in the hope and belief that he's going to stay long term and trade garland for the talent that helps fill out or, or, you know, fill in your, your other uh, deficiencies. Right. That's a, that's a tough one. Um, I don't luckily, know. Co luckily Kobe Altman went to Middlebury. So like, I mean, it's a pretty good, <laughs> he's a smart guy. All right. Uh, there's, by the way, I'm just going to leave this out there. Cause maybe Zach Lowe's listening. He, he could break this. Someone needs to do a major geeky analysis piece on why it's so hard to build an offense around two primary ball handlers. Mm. Like I remember when Vinny Del Negro actually did it really well with Chauncey Billups, and I think it was, was it, who was Chris Paul? 
Was it Chris Paul? No, no, Chris wasn't there yet. And this is when he was doing the when he was coaching the Clippers. the Clippers. Yeah, and he would run these double pick and rolls with Chauncey Billups coming off DeAndre Jordan, and they'd swing it out, and Blake Griffin would pick for the other one, and mm. they had this kind of cool thing going. But now, like Kyrie and Luca couldn't do it. Darius Garland and Dot, you don't, you didn't see a lot of. I watched a lot of Cleveland this year. You didn't see them getting stuff up. Mm. We're, we're gonna run out of time. I want to quickly preview tonight's Boston. Uh, Philadelphia series. I mean, in some ways this could be the series for the championship, right? Like the winner of this series is the odds on favorite to win the title. Uh, I don't know when we see Joel Embiid, but what's your thoughts on this series? When Miami was one win away from knocking out the bucks, my very first thought was, Oh my gosh, the heat are about to clear the path for the Celtics to win the championship. And I think most of us have thought all season that Boston and Milwaukee were the two strongest teams, not just in the East, but in the NBA that the champion was coming out of the East and with the Bucks not on the table anymore, it certainly feels like it's the Celtics to lose. The Sixers, you know, they 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 pose one of the most unique challenges in the league when they have Joel Embiid healthy because nobody has a Joel Embiid or even a, a defensive antidote to Joel Embiid. And the Celtics are better equipped than a lot of teams, at least with, with Robert Williams III and Al Horford and some big man depth and some other things you can do. You know, Grant Williams is super strong. He's not a center, but you can go throw him at him and you got a bunch of guys on the bench to go foul Embiid or, you know, Joel Embiid's not healthy. Like, he is doubtful for game one. I, I'll be shocked if he plays in game one. Um, it's a knee. You don't want to mess with that. He didn't look great toward the tail end of that, that net series when he got hurt. Um, I was at uh, that, that final game. Um I, I, I tend to think that this is a series that simply comes down to is Joel Embiid going to be healthy at some point and what percentage of Joel Embiid is he going to be? Because if, if he's close to 100%, the Sixers have a, have a shot. If he is at all limited, I, I really, like, I don't have enough faith. I certainly don't have any faith in James Harden's postseason uh, post resume. Tyrese Maxey's kind of up and down. You know, you know you'll get a good game from Tobias Harris once in a while, but then, then you won't. <laughs> um. I just there's just not a lot else there to place your faith in. Like they were a great team this this season, but it's really all about Joel Embiid, who's probably going to be unveiled as the MVP uh, this week. Um, I, I just don't see how you're getting through the Celtics, who who have such incredible talent and depth. Like they're they've they're among the deepest team in or uh, one of the deepest teams in the league. Period, and. They've got one of the best one-two punches in the league with, with Tatum and Brown. So I just don't see how the Sixers come out of this if Embiid is not, you know, somewhere close to 100%. They have a – they're so high level. Two, I was talking about 240 minutes. That's 48 times five. They throw out high level 240 minutes. Like, there's not a flaw in any player they have on the floor in their 240 minutes. And, and think about this too, just real quick. Like, to, to that point, if the Sixers have to move more toward a perimeter attack – because Embiid is, is not himself or is maybe not even available. Who has better perimeter defenders than the Celtics between their two stars, Tatum and Brown, who, who are both capable perimeter defenders, but Derek White, Malcolm Brogdon, Marcus Smart, the, the defensive player of the year just a, a season ago. Like Harden, Maxi, good luck. Good luck with those guys. He's Howard Beck. He's locked on to NBA playoff and off-season expert. He'll be bouncing around the local shows throughout the week and here every Monday on Locked On NBA. Jackson Gatlin will also have Locked On NBA's local experts on the biggest story. He'll talk to three of our local hosts about the biggest stories of the week, so make sure you catch that when the next feed coming out on Locked On NBA. Howard, 
we've done this a few times over the years. We've connected a lot of times. We were at a Jim Rome. Uh, I think we were at a Jim Rome road, whatever I used to call it, 97 or 8 together. That was a long time ago. So a pleasure to chat with you again. Pleasure to be here, David. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. He's Howard Beck. This is Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.